A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. Hello, welcome. I'm Dr. Yishan, a board-certified sleep specialist. Today, we will focus on how to cope with insomnia and how to improve our sleep quality. As you know, stress gets us all sometimes, and often sleep gets worse when our mind is full of worries. So let's review some useful sleep tips from two top sleep experts in the world. First, let's invite Dr. Michael Grasner from episode 56. Well, and sleep deprivation and insomnia, I should mention, both have, there's a whole uh, literature now emerging how both of these impact work. People with insomnia who say they have difficulty sleeping, not only do they have less productivity and they have higher healthcare costs, they call out sick more, they get injured on the job more, and they're more likely to go on disability. We also, in some of our data, we showed that People with insomnia, so everyone loses productivity from stress or coworker issues or family. We all lose productivity from a bunch of different sources. People with insomnia lose twice as much productivity as people who don't have insomnia from the same sources. And we also showed that caffeine doesn't totally fix that problem either. It can increase reaction time and speed, but it doesn't fix productivity. And we found the same thing with sleeping less. So a lot of people sleep less to work more, but it turns out when you sleep less, you become less efficient and you make more mistakes. So actually the people who slept a little more lose less productivity and they actually gain more efficiency. So they actually get more done in less time. So maybe one of the reasons why you don't feel like you have enough time for sleep is because you're not sleeping enough and you're being inefficient. So rather than sleep being a cost at the end of the day, you should see sleep as an investment in tomorrow's productivity and functioning. Oh, I love that. I love that mindset. We really should view sleep as an investment. It's much stronger uh, a statement than what I used to think. We should all prioritize sleep. But thinking about yeah. something you are investing in yourself actually gets you more productive, not the other way around. Yeah. Right. And so when, when I decide when to go to bed at night, it's not how much work do I still have left to do? It's how productive and awake do I need to be tomorrow? If I need to be functioning really well, I need to make sure I put down whatever it is I'm doing, get to sleep. Whatever it is, is going to have to wait. Because if I don't want to kill my whole tomorrow for an extra half an hour or an hour or even an hour and a half of productivity tonight, because I'm going to lose that same time tomorrow and it's going to be a cycle. So I would, I would urge people to choose when they're going to bed based on how functional they want to be tomorrow, not based on how much work they have left. And often they'll find that all that time they didn't think they had, they get it back. They'll find it by being more productive and being more efficient. That's great suggestion. People really should keep in mind. I think that's so important. Yes. Thank you for, for, telling all the audience that. 
Yeah. So I really like how you schedule your sleep and work and think about productivity that way. But I know for a lot of our audience, possibly it's quite challenging for them to gain some insight to be aware of, you know, where my sleep is. Do I really have insomnia? Am I losing <laughs> sleep? Do, how do I know? Right. Yeah. So here's a couple good rules of thumb for you. If it takes you more than a half an hour to fall asleep or you're awake for more than a half an hour during the night trying to sleep and you can't, or you wake up a half an hour before you want to and can't get back to sleep for that last time. So there's 30 minutes, at least three nights a week. And it's been going on for at least three months. You should probably see a doctor about insomnia. Um, so that 30, 30 minutes, at least three nights a week. So, and I should also mention um, treatments for insomnia are not just medication. So a lot of people don't like taking medication because it makes you drowsy and groggy and, and, and kind of other risks like falls and, and addictions and things like that. But actually what a lot of people don't realize is the most recommended treatment for insomnia actually is not medications, even though that's what most people get. It just turns out that a lot of doctors don't actually know what the actual guidelines even say. So the, actually the most effective treatment for insomnia is actually a behavioral therapy. It's a training protocol called CBTI, it stands for Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Insomnia, but essentially what it is, is it reteaches your brain to sleep because what a lot of people with insomnia have is no matter what the cause was, the insomnia takes on a life of its own where you have what's called a conditioned arousal where, where your brain has a really hard time detaching or, or when you wake up during the night, it has a hard time getting back down to sleep. And what actually happens is you accidentally train your brain to do that by being awake in bed and all these things that happen. And so what CBTI does is it reprograms you to be able to fall asleep in bed without medication. And actually for decades, it beats out any medication that's been on the market. It's as good or better. That's why most medical organizations recommend it. It's just a lot of people don't know about it because there's still not a ton of people who are experts at it. But if people were going to search about it, and I can give you some links of some directories and stuff of people who do it, it's actually a good non-medication, much more natural approach that actually it has better scientific evidence than any of the medication. So it's a good thing. So anyway, so that's insomnia. For people who have some insomnia problems, but don't maybe meet criteria for the disorder, there are a lot of things you can do. Um, the main things I would say is actually give budget time to wind down at night. Plan on when you're going to go to bed. So plan when you're going to put things down so that you don't get into bed and you haven't given yourself time to slow down because you're going to take it anyway in bed. Number two if you can't sleep, get up and get out of bed. It looks like one of the main things that turns a short-term insomnia into a long-term insomnia is that people stay in bed awake, tossing and turning. And that's what is one of the things that causes that programming of the brain to be awake in bed. So if you're in bed for 20, 30 minutes, you can't sleep, get up and take a break. Don't just sit there in agony. Get up, distract yourself for a little bit, do something else, then get back to bed. You want to minimize your time awake in bed so that the bed actually can trigger a sleep response because you're the bed equals sleep. So if you do those things, that will help set you up for fixing minor sleep problems. So there's other things we can talk about later. So that's insomnia. For sleep deprivation, it's a little harder because remember, um, most people who are sleep deprived don't know it right. or they don't know how sleep deprived they are. So here's a few signs that you might be sleep deprived. Number one, if you fall asleep within like five minutes of your head hitting the pillow, if, you're, if your head hits the pillow and you're out, 
um, that means you are probably too starved for sleep. So it's like if I put a plate of food in front of you and you finish all that food in 30 seconds, you were too hungry. So you probably should have eaten a little bit ago. You're, you're too starving. So if you're falling asleep too fast, that's a sign you might be sleep deprived. Um, probably the most obvious sign of sleep deprivation, though, is difficulty staying awake during the day. If you have trouble keeping your eyes open for significant amounts of time during the day, if every time you sit down and put on the TV, you fall asleep, if you're even falling asleep at times when you should be staying awake, like at a meeting or something like that, that's a sign that you're starved for sleep and your body is trying to take it whenever it can. Either that means you're sleep deprived in that you're not getting enough, or it means there's something in the way it's keeping your sleep shallow. Something like an untreated sleep disorder, like sleep apnea, or noise, or um, some medical issue that keeps your sleep shallow at night. If you're having trouble staying awake during the day, that's not normal. It's okay to get a little sleepy in the afternoon, but you shouldn't have an issue keeping your eyes open on a regular basis. Other signs that you're sleep deprived would be actually in your decision making. If you have a hard time making healthy choices, that's actually a sign of sleep deprivation. So when people are sleep deprived, they start gravitating toward more unhealthy food because they're craving energy. Mm. Um, they start not being able to have the energy to like get physical activity or, or make other healthy choices because they're just sluggish, but they don't quite realize that that's what's going on. So those are some signs you might not might be sleep deprived. Also, if you're getting less than six hours on average at night, that's probably not enough. Six to seven is sort of a gray zone where some people are probably fine. Some for some people, that's not enough. As long as you're getting at least seven hours, you're probably okay. Next, let's invite Dr. Colleen Carney from episode 70. So for the audience, for everyone out there who may not know much about this field, sounds like it's very important for us all to really pay attention and take insomnia seriously, to also keep the hope up. No, there are great treatment out there and we can actually directly treat insomnia. Yeah, I think anybody who is suffering from insomnia and not being taken seriously from their healthcare professional and it's constantly blamed on whatever other condition is going on or perhaps even mislabeled. There's many patients who will come to me and say, I've been told I have depression, but I don't, I really feel like I, I don't have depression, but I, I keep getting told this and I'll do an assessment and there's no depression. I think there's several tricky things here. One is that the daytime symptoms of insomnia overlap greatly with other mental health problems. And so when somebody hears something like, I have, I'm moody, I'm tired, and I can't sleep, their brain automatically goes to depression. Depression is one of those disorders that have to have one of two complaints in order to even consider depression. And that is you have to have depressed mood, not just moody, depressed mood for most of the day for nearly every day for at least a two week period or difficulty getting any sort of pleasure out of doing things that you normally would be able to do. You have to have one or two of those in order to even think about depression. 
So in that first instance, when somebody was moody, tired, and couldn't sleep, our brain shouldn't have actually even gone to depression because they don't have those cardinal symptoms. And yet that's where a lot of clinician brains go. We have lots of evidence to say that, that they get steered in the, in the wrong direction. I find this too with older adults. With older adults, we know that to some extent they start to phase advance, which means they get sleepy earlier and they wake up spontaneously earlier. And this is part of the aging process. And so what can happen with some older adults is that when they start getting sleepy earlier, they're creatures of habit. So they still want to keep their same bedtime they've had all those years, you know, watch the news and then go to bed. But what they find is, is that they are dozing off an hour or two earlier than that. They don't consider that sleep. And then when at one point or another, they'll wake up and notice the TV's on and, oh, I'll go off to sleep and they go off to sleep. And then they'll start waking up at four o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep again. Really, when I look at when they're actually falling asleep, you know, it's like 9, 30, 10, and they're waking up at 4, 4, 30, they really have had a bout of sleep. It's just that it's been partially on the couch and, and not intended. <laughs> but the problem is, is if they're going to go to their family care doctor and they say, you know, gosh, I'm tired and I wake up early and I can't get back to sleep. There is a built-in bias that many people think that early morning awakenings is a sign of depression and it actually isn't. And so when they hear early morning awakenings and they're very tired then they get put on an SSRI or an antidepressant medication, which is tricky because that could make the problem worse. And, you know, they're now on an extra medication and in the older adults, that's, we, we always want to minimize medications because there's, there's often many different medications for multiple conditions. So here are just a few circumstances in which people have reached out for help and they've been given help for a different problem that they don't actually have that can actually make it worse. I do think that we need to do a better job training what depression is and what insomnia disorder is because the last DSM, I'm, I actually love the latest DSM. I think I'm one of the few people because <laughs> the other disorders are not happy, but in sleep, now that we, we have, they're called sleep-wake disorders and what a wonderful change because sleep disorders are 24-hour disorders. It's the daytime symptoms that really bother people with insomnia. It's not staying up at night. It's when they're staying up at night, they're saying to themselves, oh gosh, how am I going to get through tomorrow? How am I, I'm going to make a mistake tomorrow. And they're really concerned about that. So the sleep-wake disorder title of DSM-5, I think is good, but also now doctors set the bar very low in order to get a diagnosis of insomnia disorder. It gets rid of the silliness of, well, was it insomnia first or, or depression first or what, what was it first? Because we know that clinicians can't make that determination. And we know that the person who's suffering from the sleep problem often has no idea what came first. And we don't treat it any different. It doesn't matter like for the treatment. So we've gotten rid of all of that. So it's actually very easy to get the diagnosis. And I think ultimately DSM-5 is going to be this, is going to be responsible for a change, a, a, a better rate of recognition and access to treatment for people just by making a few changes in the diagnostic criteria. 
I agree. I, I remember several years ago, I saw this study um, by Charles Moran and his team in Quebec. They um, published data, and there's been other studies to say this too, that the average number of years before somebody actually gets treatment for their insomnia, effective treatment, is over 10 years. That's unacceptable. And for people who are suffering, and it's, it is actually a fairly easy disorder to treat, and it's done fairly briefly. So in terms of, of cost, there are different ways to get the treatment. And, and because it's so brief, it, it can be a manageable cost. The idea that people aren't getting treated for insomnia is unacceptable to me. And it's, and it's really my passion is um, making it more accessible for, for people. Definitely. Well, I did not realize it take 10 years on average this long because I heard like narcolepsy, those kind of things, um, it take longer. But I definitely see a lot of people, um, especially in the Asian population, which is I treat mostly, they definitely have no idea they're actually a very effective cognitive behavior treatment for it. A lot of them just be on medication for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And they change doctors, they change different medications. It's just not getting better. I think a lot of people may just think, well, it's hopeless. I just possibly going to live with this forever with medication. Yeah. And I, I mean, now for some people, medication um, certainly works and it can't even work long term. But for other people, they either don't have much of a benefit for, their, for the medication or the medication can stop working. In somebody with insomnia who often will develop a fear of sleeplessness. Deep down, they worry that there's something wrong with their sleep system. So when a medication that was initially working stops working, it feels like confirmation their sleep system really is broken and they've kind of entered a new stage in severity, that they've kind of slipped down a level. Um, rather than it being blamed on the medication, they blame it on their sleep system. And the, the word hopelessness that you used is a good one because oftentimes by the time they see me, they really are pretty scared and, and feeling like it's hopeless. So just as you, when you're spreading the word about other treatments and ones that are effective like cognitive behavior therapy, my message is not really anti-medication. It's the frontline treatment really should be cognitive behavior therapy because it is more durable than medications. If you want to take medication, that's fine. There are plenty of doctors that will prescribe that. But for other people who either don't want to try it, they can't because they're on too many medications anyway, it's not working for them or stopped working, or they, it's just not something they want to do, then I think cognitive behavior therapy is one of those really great solutions for them because it is very straightforward and quick treatment. So as far as how effective it is, the reason why it's the frontline recommended treatment is because it has a lot of data behind it, right? So it's been shown time and time again, that's very effective. It's only effective though for about 80% of the people that use it. And so we still have some work to do to identify for those 20% who are not benefiting what can we do? So that is another area of research for me and, and trying to figure out for whom it doesn't work well. As far as how I get buy-in, it was interesting when Rachel and I met, wrote that book, at first we didn't want to write that book because we had finished um, 
quiet your mind and get to sleep. And we really liked that book because that was a collection of all of our kind of worksheets and the things that we did clinically. And we thought, well, this is perfect. And the publisher said, that's great, but not everyone's ready to do a workbook. And they really just need to hear about it. So maybe they're not motivated to do it, but we want a book that would get them motivated to write. And we thought, oh gosh, how are we going to write something like that? So I love that you use it in your clinic to introduce the idea of what it is to sort of get, because that's actually was the purpose of writing it. And we were like, I don't know if this is going to work. And I think that of all the books I've ever written, that's the one that people talk about the most, which I find so funny, but people like that book. And I think it's because it's simple. So buy-in, you know what I like to say to people? I've spent my life learning about the sleep system. And we have a lot of good research that tells us how it works. Now, I don't know exactly what caused your particular insomnia. And it sounds like maybe you're, you're not sure either. The good news is, is that no matter what originally caused it, I can almost guarantee you there's some new causes lurking around because your sleep system has adapted to what was initially just a short-term insomnia. And when it does, your body does a variety of things to adjust to that initial sleep disturbance that becomes really problematic. What's really important is you understand that it's not your fault because this is actually what your body does to actually take care of you. So one of the things that happens in the initial stages is that you're going to spend more time awake in bed. That's not your fault. (laughs) That's something that is a byproduct of having the initial insomnia symptoms. But when you spend time awake in bed, that place that normally when you get in that bed, boom, you fall asleep because it's the place where I sleep. Instead, suddenly you get into bed and boom, you're wide awake. And a switch goes off and suddenly you're thinking about things. You, you, you notice that you're really tense and you weren't in that state at all a minute before, before you got into that bed. So the bed can become paired with wakefulness as a result of having insomnia and it gets worse and worse and worse. So I know a trick to get rid of that. So we can talk about that. Um, another thing that happens as a result of having insomnia is that people become tired And they also, in an attempt to solve the situation, tend to spend more time in bed than they used to and less time active because they're tired. I'm going to go to bed early, see if I can cast a wider opportunity to, to, you know, get a little bit more sleep. And when the alarm goes off in the morning, I finally am sleeping again. I, I can't get up right now. So I'll just hit this news bar a couple more times. I know that the more time you spend in bed, it sends a message to the sleep system that you actually have less of a sleep need. And that's not what you want. You actually want more. You want to send a message to the body that you have a greater sleep need. And I actually know a trick to send a message to that system so that you can get more sleep and more importantly, more deep sleep, more recovery sleep. So I think that's important. And the last thing that I've noticed in people with insomnia is as a result of what we were just talking about, feeling tired, hitting the snooze bar, going to bed a little bit early, it creates a lot of variability and less activities that send a message to your body clock as to what time it is. That might not sound important, but we actually use our body clock to help us fall asleep at a certain time and get up at a certain time and feel alert during the day. So if that system is kind of fluctuating back and forth, 
and never really completely regulated, not really having this great, this is what time this happens and this is the time this that happens, then not only can you not use your clock to help you fall asleep and wake up in the morning, but you feel less alert, you feel more fatigued during the day. And I actually know a trick for your clock to become regulated so that you can use it to your benefit for sleep. So if you're interested in learning these couple of tricks to get your body, it's a way of just changing your body, then um, I suggest that we meet um, over the next two to four times. And I'll teach you about it, give you some instruction, then you can test it out, see how your body reacts, and then come back in case we have to tweak it. And then by the time we're done, the insomnia should be gone. What do you think? And so I think that's my cell. That's, that's the hardest cell I have. When somebody says, well, that sounds hard and I don't want to do it, then I'll say, well, maybe it is too hard for you to do right now. And the reason why I say that is because knowing that eating a certain way and having a certain diet is the way to gain your ideal weight doesn't mean that right now is the time that you're going to engage in that program. And that's okay. And so sometimes hearing what CBT is, is enough to be intrigued, but not to commit to, you know, cause it's two months of, of changing some habits. It might not be the right time. And so as much as I believe in this treatment, I never try and sell someone on it. I just give them what it is and then see what they want. And if they say it's not for me right now, then I'm going to cheerlead that decision and support that decision and say, you know what, I'd love to see you again. If this is, if this is still going on, then the door's always open and I'd love to see you another time. Nine times out of 10, they'll say, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about it because they're, they're a little bit curious, but I, and I'm, I'm also not the sleep police. So when somebody says, well, I'll do it, but as long as I'm not, um, you know, you're not going to make me get back into bed if I fall asleep on the couch. And I'll say, well, do you, do you care if you fall asleep on the couch? Like, no. Well, then what do I care? It's okay. Well, I'll do it as long as I don't have to do this. Well, I'll say, well, then that's fine. So I'm not the sleep police. I don't make decisions about uh, whether or not people sleep, where people sleep, and how they sleep. But my only goal is if you would like to get rid of chronic insomnia, I've got a few tricks up my sleeve if you're interested. So what do you do to cope with insomnia? Leave a comment, let me know. Again, I summarized some helpful sleep resources and you can find it on the website at deepintosleep.co slash resources. And I will keep on updating that resource page. So next week, I will summarize some really helpful tips about children's sleep. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. Ishan. I will see you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed.